It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. I just want to remind you that if you are an Ellerslie alumni, we would love to have you at our Ellerslie Alumni Summit this July 19th through the 25th. Not only is it going to be a great time for fellowship and seeking after Jesus with fellow alumni, but it's going to be a great opportunity for you to be spiritually refreshed and gain some practical tools of how to stand strong and share the gospel in today's culture. So if you're an Ellerslie alumni, you can find out more information about the summit by going to ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now, in today's Daily Thunder, I'm so excited to talk about the reality of the Israelites coming into the promised land and taking the city of Jericho. This is actually one of my favorite pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2 and buckle up because this is going to be an amazing picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Joshua chapter 2 is uh, where we're going to be. Uh, again, we've been walking through a little mini-series of Jesus in the Old Testament, and uh, which we're going to be wrapping up next week. Uh, obviously, we're not done with all the pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. We're just giving a highlight of some of them. Uh, but in Joshua, <clears throat> we looked at some of this uh, a couple of weeks ago. But in Joshua chapter 1, uh, Moses gave the command—sorry, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses gave the command over to Joshua. So at the beginning of Joshua, then, God comes and speaks to Joshua, gives him— This repeat of what Moses told him in terms of be strong and courageous. Hey, you're entering into the land. Get ready, buddy. Here we go. And as they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River, and I should have had a map, but the idea is, okay, here's the Jordan River coming down. Uh, Here's the promised land. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. They're about to enter in. They're right across from Jericho. In fact, from where they're at, and if you can imagine two or three million Israelites encamped, right, you can see Jericho from where they're at. Jericho can see them from where they're at which I think is fascinating. And in Joshua chapter 2, <clears throat> uh, Joshua sends out two spies to the city of Jericho to spy out the land, see what it's going to be like, and you know, what, what do we need to know before we actually get into, uh, get into the city itself. And so if you look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, it says that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men out from Shittim to spy, saying, Go see the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to a house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they spent the night there. Now, <laughs> just for clarity's sake, these are good Jewish boys, right? These are not like some wild living people. So even though Scripture does say they spent the night in a prostitute's house, it does not mean what you presume it means. Just thought I'd clarify that on the front end. So here's the picture. Uh, this is springtime. The, uh, the rivers of the Jordan River are extra high. It, it's the flood season. These two spies somehow get over the Jordan River, and they march a couple of miles over to Jericho, and they sneak into the city of Jericho. Now, it's interesting that in the ancient days, <clears throat> the prostitutes typically had their house in the doors or the entranceways of the cities. In other words, the, you know, you'd enter into a city, and a lot of times be this double gate kind of a thing. And in that middle of the double gate, you had some merchandise, and you had some you know, people selling all their wares. But typically you had the prostitute's house. And the idea was as people were coming into the town, she would stand by her door and beckon them in and that kind of stuff. It seems like Rahab, the prostitute, had a similar place. Uh, We know for sure that her house at least sat on the wall because later on we find out that, of course, she lets the two spies down out from her window. But get this idea. 
these two spies come into Jericho and they start looking around and they see this prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab apparently recognizes who they are. Now, whether she knew at the time they were Israelites, she at least knew that they were foreigners. So as, as a prostitute would, she begins to beckon them over to her house. And however this happened, and it obviously may have just been the providence of God, <clears throat> but the two guys go over to Rahab and begin to talk to her. Uh, and it probably makes sense, you know, Rahab being a prostitute has all the gossip, you know, she hears all the news, she knows what's going on in town, she knows what's going on around. And so the guys come over to Rahab and they begin to talk to her. And she eventually lets them into the house, <clears throat> excuse me, and what the two men find out is that the entire city of Jericho are deeply distressed because of the reality of who God is and what they know that the God of Israel is going to do. So you got to recognize that they can see, they can look right across the, this, the plains of Moab, they can look right across the Jordan River, and they can see this huge encampment of these two to three million Israelites and all their flocks and all their herds. So they know that they're coming in. <clears throat> and everyone in Jericho is horribly afraid. It's interesting to me, that when you look at verse 8 and 9 of Joshua chapter 2, Rahab says something, and this is so interesting to me. She says, uh, this is verse 8, Before the spies went to sleep, Rahab went up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, for dread, has, sorry, for dread from you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land merit in terror because of you or before you. And then they've heard about the Red Sea and all that kind of stuff. Isn't it interesting in verse 9 that she actually uses the covenant name of God? That she doesn't say, well, you're God. She doesn't say, well, this, this person that you serve. She actually uses the unspeakable name of God, Jehovah, in speaking about their God. Somehow, and I don't know how this works, but I just think this is cool. Somehow, Rahab in Jericho had heard about Jehovah God, who is the God of those Israelites way over there. And hey, they're coming in and they know who this Jehovah God is. Hey, this is the one who destroyed Egypt. This is the one who, who wrecked all this stuff. Hey, and yeah, they've been wandering for 40 years, but they're coming in and we know who this God is. And you should be deathly afraid. I mean, hey, if he could destroy the Egyptian army, which was the largest force in the world of that day, what is this little town called Jericho? Again, I just think it's interesting that she doesn't just use some random name. She uses the covenant name of God. And of course, <clears throat> after this whole thing, she says, hey, I will protect you. And in fact, I'll, I'll tell them to go somewhere else. I'll tell them to go up into the mountains. In fact, it's the same mountains that Jesus would have wandered in his uh, wilderness trials and testings and temptations. It's just right on the other side of Jericho. And so, uh, she says, hey, I will tell them to go that direction so that you can escape and go back, to your, go back to your group. But hey, because I've dealt kindly with you, because I've shown you this hesed love, which is the word that she uses in verse 12, Hey, I want you to give me a firm pledge. I want you to give me something to guarantee that me and my family will be safe when you guys come in. So, hey, I recognize you guys are going to come in. I recognize you're going to destroy everything. But could you save me for the sake of the fact that I showed you kindness when I didn't have to? And it says <clears throat> down in verse 18 uh, that they give her this scarlet cord, this red cloth, as a pledge to her salvation. And they say, look, uh, hey, when we come, whoever is in your house, you and your family, if you're in your house and this red cord is tied in the window, hey, I promise that by our lives, we will guarantee your safety. So, of course, the men go back to Joshua and they give them this grand report that says, hey, man, they uh, look at verse 24. They said, to verse, uh, they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. Indeed, all the inhabitants of the land melt in terror before us. And, of course, they give this great report. 
Uh, in chapter 3, they crossed the Jordan, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and the water stopping from this town called Adam all the way to the Dead Sea. Uh, in chapter 4, they again set up these memorial stones as a reminder of God's faithfulness and his covenant that he is going to preserve them. As you get into chapter 5, they've just crossed over the Jordan River. This is the first time in 440 years that they have, the people of Israel have been in the land of promise, which is amazing. And they have this big celebration with circumcision, which I'm sure was exciting. Uh, as you get into the end of chapter 5, uh, this commander of the Lord's army shows up. And I can't remember if we talked about this last time, uh, but Joshua was wandering in, at nighttime. And he's probably just seeking God's just wisdom and, and, and insight. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he say, uh, says in a Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, Now when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him, and in his hand was a drawn sword. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel says, For neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your sandals. And it's interesting to me. Of course, a lot of times, you know, in, in the commentaries, they say that, Oh, it, was, it was an angel of the Lord. But it, there's no way biblically you can make the argument that, that that was an angel of the Lord. And the reason being is angels never permit humans to worship them. And of course, there's all these stories where you know, an angel shows up and someone begins to fall flat on their face in terror and in worship. And of course, the angel says, no, 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 get up, <laughs> get up, get up, get up. You, know, you, you do not worship me, you worship God alone. But isn't it interesting that the commander of the Lord's army here literally demands worship from Joshua. And he says, take off your sandals. Again, it's that same picture of Moses with the burning bush, and it's a sign of worship and adoration. And so he demands worship. If you want my personal opinion, this is Jesus. But that makes sense to me. He is the commander of the Lord's army. <clears throat> Nonetheless, <clears throat> excuse me, as you get into chapter 6, Joshua begins to do what the commander of the Lord's army tells him, and they begin to march around the city for seven days. Now, could you imagine what this looks like? Typically, if you're going to go into battle, you put your strongest people first, right? You, you put all your big buff guys, so obviously the mocklers would go in front of me. So, you know, you, you would put—I thought that was funny—right? <clears throat> you put your big tough guys first, and then you put, like, all your weaker guys, and then eventually you put, like, all your, you know, your priests and trumpeters and the guys holding the banners and that kind of stuff. But you—sorry, you, you, what's interesting about this passage is that they had such a faith and a determination or trust in their God that they put all the priests and the trumpeters on the front end. And they just said, just march first, which is hilarious. Because if you're holding a trumpet, a big shofar, right, and someone's throwing arrows, you have nothing to protect you, you have nothing to fight with. This is an overwhelming trust and dependency upon their God and his protection. And they begin to march around and they go around the city for one day. Now, I know we've thought this through in terms of the Israelite perspective. But I love the thought of what this must have felt like for those in Jericho. I mean, could you imagine, we already heard from Rahab that everyone's deathly afraid. We, you know, we know that there's this expectation and fear. But could you imagine one day you wake up and the, the guys on the watchtower, you know, blow their trumpet and say, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. You know, and here, and here are these Israelites, they're marching in formation. The trumpeters are blowing their horns. And just as they get right, just right before they hit, get to, you know, bow and arrow range, they start turning, they start going around the entire city. Do you know what the trepidation and the emotional distress of that must have been like? Uh, maybe as a poor illustration. <laughs> I remember when uh, the Lord of the Rings, the two towers came out, and a buddy of mine went to the midnight showing, which was stupid. And uh, the only midnight showing that we could get to was the IMAX version of the two towers. 
So it wasn't just like a movie theater. It was like the IMAX movie theater version, which sounded really cool, except all the seats were taken except the second row at the very bottom of this movie theater. And so we were sitting there, and no joke, you had to be leaning back, and of course, you can't even see the whole screen in one swoop, so you're like having to turn your head the whole time just so you can, you know, even see, the, see what's going on. But there's a scene at the end of that show <clears throat> where these orcs are coming, and you just hear this thrump, 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 and you hear their, you know, the chain mail and all their, you know, all their armor and all their weapons and all that kind of stuff marching. And I remember sitting there as I'm swinging my head back and forth, pondering this idea of, if I was on top of that wall, I don't think I'd be doing very well. <laughs> like seeing this horrible force coming at you and they're beginning to line up and in this formation and they're growling and yelling and, and screaming, all that kind of stuff. The, the emotional distress of that had to be intense. In fact, it seemed like, even watching the movie, the people on the wall were, were more, I don't know, having issues waiting than actually dealing with the battle. In other words, once the battle starts, you're just, you don't think about the stress. You just deal with the people, right? You just start killing things. But when you're waiting, it's like there's this emotional distress. There's this emotional just exhaustion that comes upon you. Could you imagine these Jericho people that have been waiting and longing? I mean, they've been, they know it's coming. They've been deathly afraid. And suddenly, here's the day. Today's the day. The trumpets are blowing. And the Israelites are coming. They're coming. And they start going around the city. And as they get all the way around the city, they start going back to where they came. And as the last man left, you're thinking, well, okay, what are they going to do? Because is, is this like a trap? Are they, do they leave people around here? Like what's, and that was all. Do you know the stress that must have caused on their bodies? The emotional just craziness? And then the next day, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're going, they're going, they're going. The third day, they're coming, they're coming, they're going, they're going. By the seventh day, they had to have been just like, yep, they're here again. Right? Because there's just, like they're not doing anything. But on the seventh day, Right? They, they circle seven times, which I'm sure was, I don't know. I'm just trying to think from the mind of someone on the, on the wall. That had to have been crazy. Because all this time for six days they've been going back home. Now they're circling for seven days. What's going on? Today must be the big day. Right? They're, they're causing this little hurricane tornado thing around us. And you know that as they finished going around the city for the seventh time, they scream and they shout. In fact, this is Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. So the people shouted, and when they blew the trumpets, the shofars, and when the people heard the trumpets shout, sound, they shouted a loud battle cry, and the wall fell down. We could sing the kids' song, couldn't we? <clears throat> and of course, they go up into the city, and they destroy the entire city. Scholars tell us that Jericho, the walls of Jericho, they had a double wall. And I wish I could somehow picture this to you, but Jericho sits upon this little mound. It's a, it's a tell. Uh, so it's, this, it's basically these civilizations built on top of each other. And Jericho had this double wall. And scholars think that likely the wall was between 30 and 50 feet tall. I mean, this is a massive wall, a double wall even. And just to even get to the wall, you have to, you have to climb up a hill. Could you imagine the brilliancy of God in this whole thing? Uh, it's interesting, if you go to the Tell of Jericho now, you can actually see part of the wall that had fallen down. And what's amazing about that is, what scholars have discovered is that when the wall fell, the wall did not fall into the city of Jericho. The wall fell outward. And the reason that is so brilliant to me is because had it fallen in, it would have created this massive thing that the Israelites would have had to got over to get into the city. But the fact that the, the walls fell outward, it actually pushed it down this hill, so basically caused this siege ramp all the way into the city. 
In other words, they didn't have to climb over the mountain or the walls, right? It was like they just had to crawl over the rubble that had fallen down, which I just think is so brilliant of God that in the middle of this strategic battle scene, they actually gave the entrance into the city through their faith and their trust by just yelling when they were supposed to yell. Now, <clears throat> what I want to do just rather quickly is I want to show you Jesus in all of that. I want to start with the battle, and then I want to go back to the Rahab thing. It's interesting to me that when we look at Jericho, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and I mentioned this, I think it was Tuesday, but here, the, here's the Israel, here is Israel, and they're entering into the promised land. And I think it's, again, I think it's profound that Moses could not enter into the promised land. Right? Moses was disobedient. He was supposed to speak to the rock. He hit the rock, and God says, look, hey, you disobeyed. I'm not letting you into the promised land. You can see the promised land, but you can't enter into the promised land. And the reason I think that's so interesting to me is that Moses, all throughout Scripture, is symbolic of the law. He, he's symbolic of the first. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that the law cannot bring you into the land of promise? You need the better man, Joshua. And it's interesting, when, when you look at Romans specifically, you know, Romans says, hey, is the law bad? No, the law's good. But the law is a schoolmaster that leads us unto the better man, Jesus Christ. Right? So, so here is the law. Here is Moses. And he's a big finger pointing to the reality of Jesus, of the better man. In fact, the name Joshua and the name Jesus is the exact same name. So just ponder this, that the law cannot bring you into the land of promise. The law cannot supply that which you need for life and godliness. You need something greater. What do you need? You need Jesus. So Moses, again, I think this is so brilliant of God. Moses was not allowed to bring the Israelites into the promised land because even that is symbolic of the fact that the law cannot bring you into the fullness. That the law is going to lead you or point you to the fullness, but it can't actually bring that about. That the law is going to bring or is going to push you to Jesus. It's a schoolmaster, Paul says. But again, it cannot save you. What saves you? Jesus, who is our Savior. <clears throat> In fact, that's what the name Joshua even means. Right? Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. That name means Jehovah saves. He is salvation. So here is Joshua, the better man. He is our Jesus, right? He's a, he's a picture of Christ. He is leading them into the land of promise, the, the, the land that you and I are, are given. Just that alone is phenomenal. But as they enter the land of promise, again, they're confronted with something. There's 31 hostile empires. And there's a whole list of those as you continue through the book of Joshua and Judges. <clears throat> you begin to realize there are 31 hostile empires in the land of promise. Now, on Tuesday, we talked about this idea that you get out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. You go through this testing trial period of the wilderness, which is supposed to be short, right? So it's, it's only a two-week journey, uh, it, literally. And then you go into the land of promise. The land of promise is not heaven. It is the reality of the Christian life. It is the Spirit-filled life. That all things that you need for life and godliness are contained or found in Christ Jesus. And this is where we're supposed to be. Again, the law cannot bring you there. The law will point you there. The law cannot bring you there. You need the better man. You need Jesus. But as I mentioned the other day, the moment you get into the land of promise, it's not that life becomes oh, relaxing or honky-dory or there's no more problems and you know skittles are falling from the sky and all that kind of stuff. The reality is you enter the land of promise and what you find is that there is now a new battle, right? There's that, what, what Paul would call is that internal battle of the flesh and the spirit. 
that there's this enmity that's going on within you, that you want the things of God, but yet you don't want the things of God. You want the things of the world, but you really want the things of God, and there's this tension going on within you. Now, what was happening physically here in terms of going out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land facing Jericho, while that was physical or literal and historical here, we're talking spiritual in our own lives, right? That we spiritually are set free from bondage and slavery by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, right? We go through this testing period of our faith, but the moment we enter the land of promise, again, isn't it interesting that it's not that things become easier. In some ways, they become harder because now we have these 31 hostile empires we have to deal with. And you recognize, if you've been in the church any length of time, that there are certain things that God needs to deal with in our souls for us to fully inhabit and dwell, conquer, and live in this land. That there's these things like pride, uh, arrogance, frustration, right? The anger kind of stuff, or lust and impurity and whatever that may be. That there's these things in our life that he's, he's trying to sanctify and deal with spiritually in our life, and not, not just spiritually, it is very practical and physical too. But you, you realize these are, these are spiritual holds in our lives that he wants to bring down and demolish so that you can have full access and life in the line of promise. It's not by accident then that the first place they come to is a place called Jericho. Now, I don't know what your Jericho may be, but here, here's what's interesting. Unless God deals with your Jericho, you cannot continue entering into the land. That Jericho is sitting right there, right in the very middle, or the very beginning of this whole thing. You're about to enter in. This is right on the border. I mean, right after they cross the Jordan River, here's Jericho. What does that tell you? Well, the moment I come to Christ, there are certain things in my life that he's going to have to get a hold of. And again, in, in everyone's life, they probably look a little bit different. <clears throat> but what's interesting about Jericho is Jericho is intimidating. Jericho has these tall walls. Jer- Jericho is just this, it's, it's a place of intimidation. And again, I don't know what yours is, but having dealt with a whole bunch of young men over the, over the last decade or so, it seems like in our culture today, at least for young men, Jericho for most young men's life is this area of purity. And of course, it's getting worse and worse and worse because we have all the devices in our pockets and things are so easily accessible. But for a young man, again, I don't, I don't know what it is for the women typically, and not that every guy deals with this either. I understand that. But for most young men, it's interesting that when, you come, when they come to Christ, the first thing that God wants to get a hold of is that area, purity. Now, we look back and we go, well, this is, this is impossible. Do you know how big the walls of impurity are? Do you know how massive this thing is? Do you know how intimidating this is? And I think that's the whole point of Jericho. Now, Jericho is literal. It was historical. I understand that. But think of how, think of just the picture, the symbolism of this. God looks at the Israelites and says, look, uh, Jericho has these massive walls, double wall, 50 feet, 30, 50 feet tall. Uh, Rather than just go and fight them, I want you to trust. And I want you to walk around that city for seven days. Haven't you ever wondered why on earth do they have to walk around a city for seven days? And I've heard speculation like, well, it was like this rabbit's foot, hocus pocus thing that, you know, walk around seven times, the the walls will fall down. (laughs) That's not in the passage. In fact, uh, I remember we had a prayer meeting here uh, in one of our first semesters, and we were praying and <clears throat> for someone that was dealing with some stuff. And about two, I don't know, it was two or three hours into the prayer time, which was, I mean, that's an exhausting, I mean, that's a long time to be praying. But two to three hours of praying, we're all walking around, we're just praying hard. And some young lady came up to me, and, and at this point, I don't even remember who it was, which is probably good. <laughs> but she comes up to me and says, 
uh, Nathan, I have a thought. Why don't, we, why don't we either walk around the building or walk around this room seven times and then let's yell really loud at the end and maybe there'll be breakthrough, you know, in this person's life. And I, I didn't mean to do it, but I looked at it and I was like, really? And I started laughing because I was like, are you kidding? Like, you think that's going to work? And I should have been more sensitive. But, but see, in her mind, the idea of Jericho was, oh, it was a rabbit's foot thing. That, hey, every time you walk around something for seven times, you know, and you, and you, you, know, you scream, it's going to happen. I'm like, you can't even get that from the passage, right? It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive, first of all. And if we're actually going to be literal, then, hey, we're going to have to do this for seven days, right? We're going to have to have some, uh, go buy some shofars, right? Because you can't have a normal trumpet in this thing, right? We're going to we're gonna have to create some walls so that they can fall. I mean, the, the, <laughs> I mean anyway, I laughed and <clears throat> I felt bad later. Maybe. But, <clears throat> but see, the idea here is, is, see, it's not a rabbit's foot. It's not some hocus-pocus thing. The, the re- I'm convinced. The reason why God had them walk around the city for seven days is that for seven days they're walking around going, I don't, this is impossible. I don't, I don't know how we're going to get this thing done. That this is 30 to 50 feet tall and double wall and look at those guys and they're just mean and nasty and they're just, and hey, we've been, we've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. We are not warriors. In fact, our ancestors were brick makers. I mean, we just got out of Egypt 40 years ago, and we are, we are not trained in this stuff, and, and I don't know how we're going to get this thing done. God's going to have to fight for us. Yeah. And so at the end of the seventh day, they scream, they yell, they have this war cry, the walls fall, and they go, oh, oh. Get, sorry, the walls fall out. But, oh, I get it. And they go in, and, and they win. And it, it's a picture of dependency. That, that the proving ground was in the, will you trust me? Will you, you let me fight the battle for you? In fact, it's interesting, and we know there was sin in the camp, but the next battle they fight was this little group called AI. And it was this little tiny group, and, and they thought, well, let's just send a couple of our guys. I mean, hey, if we can battle Jericho, what's a couple people down at AI? You know, it's just like no big deal. And so they sent a couple of people, and they run back, and they got defeated. And they realized, you know, we cannot fight the battle on our own strength that God must go in before us. Do so you realize that is true in your life? That here you are, you enter into the land of promise, and now there's these 31 hostile empires that need to be dealt with. You cannot fight those on your own. In fact, if anything, they're intimidating. Hey, there are giants in the land, tall, tall, tall fortresses. So what is God going to do? He's trying to prove to you that, hey, will you trust me? So march around this thing for seven days so that you go, wow, I don't, this is impossible. To use the illustration with most young guys, you realize you start poking at the idea of purity, and they're like, I've never even heard you could be pure. I mean, how, how do you not just deal with the pornography stuff, but just the mental stuff? Like, how is that even possible? And what they've done is they've lived for their life, however long that may be, walking around Jericho going, yeah, this is impossible. Maybe the best I can have is a treaty with Jericho so they don't beat me up too often. And God says, no, I want to give you victory. But do you realize that you're going to have to trust in my provision? In Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is, is saying that, hey, your God is going to go in before you. Jehovah God is going to go in before you as a consuming fire, and he is going to fight your battles. He is going to destroy them. That is still true in our spiritual life. That here we are in the land of promise, and what does God want to do? He wants to fight the battles. That he wants to bring the victory and the triumph. Will you rest, depend, trust, abide in his provision? Now, you've got to walk in obedience. We get that. Hey, you're, you're going to have to walk this thing. Hey, we get that. But this is not you and your strength and your wisdom and your talent bringing about victory. This is, hey, would you let God? Yeah, but have you seen how tall the walls are? 
yeah, don't, don't worry about the, how big the walls are because your God is still far bigger. And again, I think the reason, I think, I think it's brilliant that they had to deal with Jericho first is Jericho was this massive place with a massive fortress and it was impossible in their own strength to deal with it. And what God was proving on the very beginning of them entering into the land of promise is you're going to have to trust that you're going to have to depend upon me, that yes, you're now in the land of promise, but if you actually want to live and prosper in the land of promise, I'm going to have to start dealing with these 31 hostile empires. So one practical thing for our lives here in present day is, first of all, are you in the land of promise? And if you are, you've got to recognize that life doesn't become easy. It's not just sit back and let just watch the plants grow, right? You're going to have some battle. But will you let your God fight your battles? And again, I don't know what your 31 hostile empires are within your soul, right? Whether it be pride or arrogance or covetousness or gossip or lust or pride. I, I don't know what it is for, for you. But, but will you let God begin to go through your life and begin to weed out and destroy everything that is standing against him? But again, you do not fight in your strength, in your might, in your ability. You stand in the strength and the provision of your God, which is amazing. Love that. Uh, if you go back to the Joshua chapter 2 idea, uh, here's Rahab, <clears throat> and uh, she had sent the spies away, and of course she had the red cord. And if you can imagine for those seven days, here's Rahab, and they're coming, they're coming. And she grabs her family, puts them in her little room, and says, hey, just trust. Hey, that we're going to trust in their God for our safety. That they give me a pledge that we're not going to be hurt and if I can say it this way, the scarlet cord or the thread or the cloth that they gave her was her sign of salvation. See the parallel of this. Just as the Israelites left Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, and the sign or the, the picture of their salvation was the blood of the lamb, you realize that for Rahab's, her picture, her salvation, her sign was a red cloth. Of course, as you continue that story, Jericho, right? Jericho is destroyed. <clears throat> they go and they go grab Rahab and her family. And they bring her out and the rest of the city is completely destroyed. And Rahab, this is so neat. Rahab is integrated into the, the Israelites. In fact, Rahab, so crazy. Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, got to be in the line of Jesus. That she was the great-great-great-great-grandmother, whatever the heavenly grace it was, of David. That David, the, the greatest king of all time in, in the land of Israel, came from Rahab. Isn't that crazy? A Gentile prostitute. And if that wasn't, I mean, the fact that Jesus came from a Gentile prostitute, that's saying the fact that God is willing to use anybody. Oh, that's exciting because he can use me. But again, look at this idea that hers, her pledge, her sign of salvation was a scarlet thread. Now, we've gone through this so many times, but really quick. When you look at how they made scarlet cloth in antiquity, it is beautiful, a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? These, these scarlet worms would crawl up on a tree, and when a scarlet worm was going to give birth to, I was going to say to her young. Is that right? Is that grammatical? She's going to give birth. She's going to have young. I don't know. She's going to give birth. She would, the scarlet worm would embed herself in the side of a tree, just, just listen. This is so cool to me. And as, as she was about to give birth, she would allow herself to die and allow her blood to flow out and incubate these babies that are coming out of her. And what these antiquity people would do, these uh, cloth makers, is they would go around and they would see these splotches of red on these trees. And they would go and they would literally pull out the silk from this scarlet silkworm. 
and it had been dyed red or scarlet because of the blood of that scarlet silkworm. And so the reason why red cloth or scarlet cloth was so expensive is because it wasn't some artificial dye that they would put into the cloth. This is the blood of the, of the, sil- of the scarlet silkworm dyeing the silk that they would pull out as she was giving birth. Now, I don't, I don't know if you see that, a picture of the gospel in that, but just ponder how beautiful that just as a scarlet silkworm embedded herself in a tree permanently, you realize our salvation, Jesus, embedded himself or allowed himself to be embedded on a tree. And just as this scarlet silkworm was willing to give her life for the next generation, so too he was willing to give his life so that many sons and daughters could be birthed out of this, right? And it was through the blood of the scarlet silkworm that not only did her children find life and salvation, but then it became the, the, that which dyed the, the silk. So ponder all this. Rahab had something hanging in her window. It was a scarlet cloth, which was dyed from a scarlet silkworm. That, that it was this, this whole picture of the gospel in the scarlet silkworm. And by the way, you can look it all up. There's so much more depth to that. But this picture of the scarlet silkworm is literally the very thing that Rahab is having in her window. So just see again the progression. What, what is our sign of salvation? It is the blood of the lamb. What was Rahab's salvation? It was the scarlet silkworm. You realize that that scarlet silkworm idea shows up all over the place, all over being at least a couple, right? Psalm 23 is one of them, where speaking of the, of the Messiah, it says he's a worm and no man. Do you know what Jesus was? He was a worm, that he was less than a man. He was a worm. But the word there for worm is the word scarlet silkworm. That is amazing to me. Do you know what Jesus is? He is the scarlet silkworm, giving his life for those that, that, that are to come after him. Uh, you find it in Jonah when this worm eats this poisonous plant. And what's the worm? It's the scarlet silkworm eating a poisonous plant. The scarlet silkworm was eating death itself and taking on the death. See, there's this, all these great pictures of the scarlet silkworm. And that's what Rahab had in her window. Again, I don't know what you want to do all that. I just think it's phenomenal that this reality of the gospel is just everywhere in Scripture. And if I can encourage us, let us live in the reality of the promised land. Let us live in the scarlet silkworm, that which has been purchased, or the blood of the lamb which was purchased, that, that purchased us. That, that we have a covenant, we have a pledge. What is it? It is his blood. It is his life within us. Well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we have salvation in you. And Lord, thank you that you are our scarlet silkworm. And Lord, I just pray that for everyone who is listening, that you would take our Jerichos. Well, first of all, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that's not in the promised land and who's been wandering the wilderness, that Lord, that you would press them to cross the Jordan, that you would, you would cause a yearning and just a passion to say, I, I can't live in this place of trial and testing that by faith I'm going to enter in and that they would actually have the life of Jesus. But Lord, I pray that for those of us who are in Jesus, that you would begin to reveal these 31 hostile empires that must be destroyed. That, that whatever it may be, anything that stands against you and your nature, pride, lust, gossip, envy, drunkenness, debauchery, whatever it may be, Jesus, I, I pray that you would illuminate those things in our life and that you not in our strength and not in our power, but by your Spirit, 
that you would begin to sanctify and change and transform and that the land of promise would truly be the land of the promise. Feel the promise of the Spirit, the, the life of God, that, that the, a life of victory and triumph, the life of, a life of peace and hope and joy. And Lord, I pray that we would not be run around by these 31 hostile empires, but the 31 hostile empires would come under your authority and that they would be destroyed and removed. Lord, I pray that we would live Christian lives that we wouldn't just be dabbling in the world and still call ourselves Christians, but that we would have the fullness of the life of Jesus within. So Lord, I just ask that you would freshly stir and convict and cause each of us to come afresh to the cross where our scarlet silkworm was embedded upon a tree. Lord, we thank you for your life and for your love. Thank you for your word. We love you in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.